Hello, and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Graham Farmelow, author of The Strangest Man, The Hidden Life of Paul Dirac, Quantum Genius. The name of Paul Dirac is little known outside the world of professional science, certainly less familiar than many of his contemporaries such as Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, Schrödinger and Oppenheimer. Yet Graham Farmelow's book shows that Dirac, a taciturn, possibly autistic man, had no peers among 20th century theoretical physicists, except Einstein himself. Yet you'd be hard-pressed to find any public commemoration of him in Bristol, the city where he was born in 1902. I asked Graham what had sparked his own interest in Dirac. My interest in Dirac began when I was, uh, I guess, about 15 years old, when I had a, a, a job selling raffle tickets to the local Liberal Party, and I met purely by chance a theoretical physicist by the name of John Bendel actually uh, in uh, and he happened to mention on a doorstep in uh, the southeast london town of uh, orpington uh, that he was a theoretical physicist uh, and later on that he was very very enamored of paul dirac i'd never heard of him it turned out that uh, john bendel would qualify as a certifiable dirac fanatic totally obsessed with dirac's work uh, I took an interest in this and began to read or try to read Dirac's famous book, The Principles of Quantum Mechanics. L that really made me want to be a theoretical physicist. I'd never seen physics written up like that. It's it, with its tremendous mathematical clarity, its power of its reasoning, the elegance of its arguments. And I went on to become a theoretical physicist, not remotely in that Dirac's league, but it was that encounter on that Orpington doorstep that, that led me to my journey towards Dirac. And presumably at that stage, it was Dirac the thinker, the writer, the scientist, rather than Dirac the man the character whom you evoke in the book that you were responding to. Very much so. I knew nothing about Dirac's strangeness, so to speak, the Dirac stories that are so famous in the world of physics uh, until quite a bit later. I might I might have just heard that he was a bit taciturn or something, but I, I really had very little idea of Dirac's personality. But once I became a, a professional theoretical physicist, so to speak, or a theoretical physics student, then you start to be inducted like everybody else into these Dirac stories, right, which are just everywhere. People joke about these stories and retell them, sometimes make them up, I suspect. And uh, yes, uh, that's how I started to glimpse Dirac in his, you know, the, in his fullness, so to speak. And these stories, you you relate a lot of them in the book. And what comes across is that most of them seem not to be apocryphal. The, the story that I confess, when I read about it, I thought, well, this is probably untrue. But now I believe, I, I, I would say with some hesitation, I'm certain it is true uh, that uh, the, the following anecdote, which dates back to the late 1920s when he was giving a talk in the Midwest of the United States of America. He gave the talk, sat down, chair of the uh, seminar or whatever it was, said, uh, Dr. Dirac, would you be prepared to take uh, questions? And Dirac said, yes, of course. Somebody at the back put his uh, hand up and said, uh, wonderful talk, uh, Dr. Dirac. But one thing, I, I really didn't understand that uh, equation on the top right hand of the blackboard. And everyone turns, looks at Dirac, says nothing just move the chair breaks the uh, the ice so to speak and turns to him and said uh, dr Dirac, would you like to respond to this question and Dirac said 
matter-of-factly. It wasn't a question, it was a comment. I, he said that at least three times. One of his best friends, who also found it difficult to believe, actually asked him point blank whether he did say it, and Dirac said yes, and each time they deserved it. So you have there someone who is, the best you could say, is literal-minded to a, a comic fault, so to speak, but has absolutely no sense of the kind of wide berth we give each other in conversation, you know. Uh, he has just had no sense of that. Another one, one other uh, story. There are, there are many, many of them, where a, a colleague of his, John's College, Cambridge, said, uh, it's, a, it's a hot day, isn't it? Dirac didn't respond, as usual, for about two minutes, three minutes. Another course comes along at the table, and then Dirac turns to him and said, how hot? Now, I get game. When I heard that, I thought, well, that's not even funny. It's just bizarre. And if, if you try imagine your way into Dirac's mind, this is a, a perhaps a crass reconstruction of it, but person sitting next to him said, it's a hot day, isn't it? Then the question one would imagine Dirac is saying, well, that's a verifiable, it's a verifiable thing. You can test it. You could have a thermometer. It's, it, it's not a particularly interesting question. So I will simply go back with a, with, with a, with a response. But basically indicating that you measure such a thing with temperature. Again, it's not, it's not particularly funny or perceptive, but that is the extraordinary way that Dirac looked at the world. And I conjecture in, in the book, uh, I'm, I must say, I think it's perverse, in my opinion, to argue otherwise, but I suspect that uh, Dirac is, uh, would, would now be uh, someone who would be diagnosed autistic. Take us back to Bristol in 1902 when Dirac was born and tell me a little bit about the kind of family and milieu in which he was raised. Dirac was born Swiss because his father was a, uh, a Swiss citizen, a teacher in a local school, uh, Merchant Venturers, very well endowed school by the Merchant uh, Venturers Association in Bristol. Uh, his mother was Cornish. She, she said, I'm not English, I'm Cornish. They married in uh, the late 1890s and Dirac was their second son. I don't think that they were particularly perceived as a particularly odd family. I, I, I must say I, I can't be absolutely certain of that, but my clear impression was that they were just an ordinary family living in a terrace of houses in a modest suburb of uh, Bristol. He was very, very fine school teacher, very successful in what he did. She, she was a perhaps slightly naive, but uh, good-hearted woman, uh, married an exotic Swiss who, who she met in the library. And there we are, family. Eventually, it became a family with a, compl a completion when they had three children. And it looked, as I say, just like hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of families at that time. What we hear from Dirac, from the reminiscences he gave when he was uh, just about to turn 60, and then in private later on, was that for him, for his, for his recollection, it was a it was an X-rated childhood. I want to stress this is all in Dirac's perception. We have no other accounts of this uh, except for a few comments his mother uh, his his mother made in letters and what have you, which again they're very biased towards, of course, his mother's view. Of course, Dirac's memory was of a tyrannical father, a man very very keen on his children's education, but with no understanding whatever of the need to socialize, to have friends round, you know, to you know, to have time when you could relax and what have you. And in particular, it was the mealtimes that Dirac recalled were particularly horrendous. 
And the reason for that was that his father uh, insisted that his children only spoke to him in French. In fact, I heard one anecdote, published anecdote, where Dirac thought that men spoke French and women spoke English. Extraordinary. But anyway, it turned out, for, for reasons we don't know, that his brother and sister would eat with his mother in the kitchen and that he would sit at the table with his father and that his father would punish any kind of error whatever in his French, a botched subjunctive, a mispronounced word or what have you, by denying Paul, his son, his next request, even if it was as basic as, can I go to the toilet? Or can I, uh, can I leave the table? Because Dirac had very bad digestion of that thing. And he, I draw a veil over some of the horrible things that happened at that table. But in particular, Dirac never forgot what he saw as the great brutality of those mealtimes. And yet one of the most poignant things, I think, in the book, because, as you say, he portrayed his relationship with his father as tyrannical and oppressive and something that really, we might say today, screwed up his, his, mm. his later life. Mm. One of the most poignant things in the book for me was his father's pathetic, in the literal sense, attempts to understand what his son was doing when he was a successful scientist. Well, I have to say that in in look, there, there aren't that many letters from his fa his father. I'm glad to have. I think there are two, and there's a, there's a postcard as well. You know, one mustn't be naive about this, but they they look very loving. They look very loving. You know, he talks about you know I'll bring you chocolate home. I I wouldn't leave home if I unless I had to. So I'm not being naive. He may he may have been horrible to his son, but there was certainly a loving father somewhere in there. That that's for sure. And as you say, uh, when Dirac became a successful scientist, then we know that his father was desperately disappointed by the fact that his son, a superstar academic refused to speak to him. Dirac, Paul Dirac refused to speak to his father about what he was doing. And one of the most memorable documents that I, I was able to touch in the uh, at, in the archive at Florida State University, uh, which, which Dirac uh, bequeathed, was this notebook with P on the front of it, where you can see that Charles Dirac, Dirac's father, just was writing out frankly rather ignorantly poor man right you know these these statements about his incredibly imaginative and brilliant son plainly having no sense of, of what he was writing and and frankly anyone could see that his choice of articles was not particularly enlightened there were tremendous writers there eddington jeans and what have you these people were brilliant writers but no one had put charles dirac onto this and i would say all the indications are that paul dirac shut out his father so, and, and I think anyone who's uh, been a father or even an uncle like, like myself, you know, would find that deeply affecting that, uh, that, that the relationship had been ruined, I suspect, mm. in their childhood. Now, Charles Dirac was not alone in finding Paul Dirac's work d impossible to penetrate. Mm. What I wondered, though, I mean, most of us don't understand the work of Einstein, but we know that Einstein was one of the was the great scientists of the 20th century mm. from your book it becomes clear that Dirac really should be standing up there mm. alongside Einstein. Why has Dirac been so neglected outside the scientific community? There are two reasons for that. The most important one, I think, is Dirac's great aversion to publicity. He just had no interest in becoming a celebrity, none at all. He really didn't want to be on, on the stage. Second, his work 
is so mathematical, so arcane to most eyes that it it is not easy to get over, if you like, in the, in the same broad brush way that, uh, that that one can attempt to get over Einstein's work. Dirac regarded Einstein as the greatest physicist of the 20th century, and I, for one, think he's, he's right. But make no mistake, when Einstein went to Princeton, to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, the first physicist on his list to have him as a colleague was Paul Dirac, and that was 1933. And from the book, it's very clear that physicists fall into two categories, the experimenters, the empiricists, mm. and the, the thinkers, the, the, the physicists who proceed by pure reason, the top-down thinkers. Mm. And Dirac fell very clearly into the second camp. Yes, I'd just qualify that a little. Yeah, you're, it's, certainly, it would, it, it's certainly true that Dirac was top-down. He knew what was going on in experiments, and he loved, he, he, he loved going into laboratories and seeing how they were done. But he believed that the right way to do physics like to be do theoretical physics, I should say, is not to be to try and build up theories, so to speak, from elements, from data elements, but to keep an eye on the data and to try and go in at the very top. Another classic top-down thinker, of course, is Einstein. When he uh, set out his theory of gravity, he, he, he had no new data to look at. He went straight in and was looking for the governing equation of the governing force of the universe. Dirac very, very strongly uh, had that view. And that's why he's seen, even more than Einstein, perhaps, as the, if you like, the great brain alone in the universe, trying to divine these mathematical laws that, that describe the harmonies at the, at the core of, uh, of our material existence. You've got a very nice quote in the book, an epigram to one of the chapters, which was written by Wordsworth about Newton, a mind forever voyaging through strange seas of thought alone, and that by implication applies very much to Dirac too. It does indeed. That's why I chose the quote, because uh, when you go back to it, you see that you could use exactly, if, if you have words worth poetic talent, that you could use those exact same words uh, about Dirac. Now, for you as a writer, the great challenge about this book, or one of the great challenges, must have been to convey what Dirac's, what he was working on and what his achievement was, mm -hmm. when the subject matter is in itself, by definition, impenetrable to all but a, a small minority of, um, of trained physicists. So how did you as a writer grapple with that difficulty? I really wanted this book to be one that would be read and enjoyed by professional theoretical physicists, but also I wanted it to be one that would also be appreciated and enjoyed by people who aren't scientists, haven't had a training in science, but who are minded to be interested in people who've made great contributions. So given Dirac's achievement, which I, I saw it as my, I saw it that it was it was up to me to try to convey the most important parts of what Dirac did, that one of the th ways in which I could talk about Dirac in an accessible way was to weave in his family life as well, which I think is an amazing story. So that's the the, the strategy that I use, so to speak, as, as is perfectly obvious for anyone who's read the book, is to weave those those two sticks together. And they do, I think, shed some light on one another. In the end, as for any scientist, ultimately it's their science that stands alone. And Dirac uh, is just as almost as much as Einstein. He's posthumously productive. We are still reading his papers, still learning from them. Physicists often say, that the more you understand a subject, the more you appreciate the clarity of Dirac's expression. When, you, when people come across Dirac's work for the first time, it sometimes seems like 
you know, my goodness, what on earth is he talking about? You miss phrases because they seem casual, they seem redundant. When you really, really understand, you see why every word is necessary. And that's why I've once said, perhaps lightheartedly, that Dirac is in one way one of the great 20th century poets. Every word he used was there for a purpose. Really is literally true. It's very hard to find a wasted word in Dirac. And you see that when he's giving lectures, because when he's asked to explain something, he really can't move beyond restating that because he's found the clearest mode of expression first time around. Yes, that's that's a really important point. Uh, and I must say again, that ties in very strongly, I would say, with his uh, with with, I believe, his autistic personality. Once he's got a way of understanding it, that job is done. Uh, I, I mean, an anecdote there that when I was a graduate student, a uh, young Cambridge physicist I know uh, told me of a friend who wrote to Dirac and said that wonderful Professor Dirac, uh, I'm, it's my Bible, uh, but on uh, page 234, second, uh, second paragraph, I, you know, I really, really don't understand what you're saying there about quantum electrodynamics. And Dirac wrote back very swiftly and said, I've gone back to the book. I've read it and I can't find any clearer way of stating it. When someone meets you at a, at a party and, and says, well, you know, what, what is this man's claim to fame that you've been working on for all these years? How do you explain the significance of, of Dirac? Dirac was one of the great co-inventors of the theory of the universe at the finest level, the laws that govern atoms and molecules and, uh, and stuff even finer than that. That is the most revolutionary theory that scientists have found in the last 120 years. Dirac's expression of those theories is unequaled in its clarity, its power, its beauty. As Freeman Dyson said, Dirac's papers, unlike any other, because they were like perfectly carved marble statues falling from the sky, and that's a brilliant way of describing it. Look at the other papers, great. Sometimes he was beaten occasionally by other people, but nobody had that beauty and clarity of expression. Other papers look scrambling, awkward, hesitant, or what have you. Dirac mind was, was special. He was one of the co-inventors, two co-inventors of something called field theory, which is the way we describe the kind of physics we do at the Large Hadron Collider, which is going to open up for sure, uh, this year, 2009, Dirac's work is all over what we call the standard model of the fundamental constituents of the universe, particularly through his work on field theory, but in, most certainly his, his main contribution, if you like, most famous contribution, was through what's called the Dirac equation. What he did there uh, in late 1927 was to marry quantum theory and relativity and to produce a single description of the only known fundamental particle then, the electron, a, a, an irreducible speck of matter, so to speak. So Dirac married those two things together, produced that equation that was seen as a complete miracle by other people. There were something like 15, 20 people, Nobel quality, trying to do that. When Dirac sent his summary of what he'd done to Germany, he, he expressed it in four lines at the, as a postscript to a, to a letter he wrote. And they were, frankly, devastated. Nobody could believe, where, did, where on earth did he get this from? And it stands now as one of the great miracles of the 20th century. In the theories that describe 
your electrons, your quarks, your strangeness, your charm, and all the rest of it, the Dirac equation is absolutely smack bang in the centre of that. It is one of the miracles of, of modern physics. Some people, lay people, may be surprised by the emphasis that he put on beauty, that an equation should be beautiful, that a mathematical expression should have beauty. Can you say why, why that mattered to him and, and whether you think it, it, it ultimately does matter? You're absolutely right to say that Dirac was, in the end, obsessed with mathematical beauty. He was absolutely, it was almost a religion, he said to him, and indeed uh, to his colleague Erwin Schrödinger. What happened was that uh, having invented or discovered the Dirac equation, very, very beautiful thing. Why do, what do I mean by beautiful? Well, universe, something universal describes every electron that's ever existed for all time. It's not, it's not just something that just works locally. Beautiful simplicity, a grandeur of sorts, and can't be changed at all in any way. When you write that Dirac equation down, you can't change anything. So just as you say that a great Milton sonnet is perfect, so to speak, you can say the same thing about the uh, Dirac equation. So they have a certain kinship, the beauty of a poem, the beauty of, uh, of, uh, of, of, a, of an equation like the Dirac equation. Dirac came to believe very, very strongly that the way to set out really fundamental theories was to be guided by mathematical beauty. He said he, what, his, what he wanted to do was to let mathematical beauty lead him by the hand. And I suppose um, this is a bit of amateur psychology, so to speak. When you've discovered the Dirac equation and you've seen its gorgeousness, so to speak, which every theoretical physicist at an advanced level now knows about, right, it will make a huge impression on you. But it has to be said, perhaps this is a little bit harsh, but it has to be said that Dirac, I don't think, was ever able after his great years to turn that mathematical beauty into something productive, so to speak. That's not to uh, deny great his achievement in doing what what he did when he was a, a young man. But when, when he was an old man, he was preaching this thing, but never able to make it work for, for him. That said, if you look at modern theories of the fundamental nature of the universe, string theories, for example, what impresses the great leaders of that theory is the mathematical beauty of what, what they are dealing with. They have faith that the beauty of it can't be an accident, so to speak, even though there are great problems with it. There's no experimental evidence directly to support it at the moment, but they are being led by that mathematical beauty. And in a sense, they are following the spirit of Dirac in, uh, in, in taking that view. I wanted to ask you about an idea which comes up more than once in the book, which is that great theoretical physicists do their best work by about the time they're 30. And if they've not done it by then, then, you know, the, mm -hmm. and it's probably all downhill after that. And I wanted to tie that to a comment Dirac made late in life about seeing his life as a failure. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was a serious evaluation on his part? I mean, he didn't, he didn't give flippant evaluations. So do you think he really felt he hadn't fulfilled what he, he hoped he would when he set out as a young scientist? Well, it's true that when Dirac was young, he, he was joking with Heisenberg about, you know, when you're 30, you're more or less finished. It's, it is a bit flippant. The cruelest and least charitable evaluation of Dirac's work would be to say that he'd done his best work by the, top, by the end of 1933. Uh, and by uh, then he was 31. 
And he got his Nobel Prize in the same year. He got it in that year. You could also say it was the Nobel curse. That once you've got the Nobel Prize, you don't do anything else. Very unfair, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, as I said, in the spirit of big generalizations, one one could nod to to that without taking it wholly seriously. But I ought to say that Dirac did do some very fine work after that. He was doing good work that is still used today, right up until his early 60s. And I mean, work that people like myself and people far better than I am at theoretically would kill to be able to make contributions like that. He did great work in, in advanced quantum theory, in relativity, when he was, you know, well on in years. But the most revolutionary work is, is tends to be done by uh, by, by younger uh, theoretical that, that much That much is true. You ask about uh, the evaluation he made when he basically told Pierre Ramon at Florida State University after a talk that his life had been a failure. Well, yes, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that uh, Pierre reported that accurately. And yes, Dirac was disillusioned, it has to be said. Why was he disillusioned? Well, he really did believe that the laws of physics have to account for the simplest things. Now, by his standards of rigour, the quantum field theory, the thing that he co-invented, did more than almost anyone to, to establish. In his way of looking at things, if you look at the interaction between the electron and a photon, that's a particle of light, then the, the calculations gave these things infinities. They didn't give real numbers. They gave these huge, huge things, infinities that plague the theory. Other physicists believed very strongly that there were ways of handling that. Dirac simply could not live with them, and he simply disbelieved the uh, progress that was being made. Virtually everyone disagreed with Dirac about that, but Dirac's purity, remember uh, Niels Bohr called him the purest soul, uh, Dirac's purity would not allow him to accept that. And that's why he uh, told Pierre Amor that he, 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 he genuinely believed his life had been a failure. You say in the book that one way of evaluating a scientist's career is to look at its posthumous productivity. And I wondered how you felt Dirac fared on that measure. I think Dirac is definitely uh, posthumously productive. I mean, people are still using uh, Dirac's papers. Uh, I learned, uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, a visitor to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where they have a peerless uh, faculty of uh, theoretical physicists, and they still look at Dirac's work. I, I had several conversations with uh, with some of the great physicists there who were talking about reading his papers for profit now. That's extremely unusual, it has to be said. Science is ruthlessly opportunistic in the sense that once a paper is done and digested by the community, people put it into textbooks and don't look at the papers. But with Dirac, they are special. They really are special. And it is still something that leading physicists do with profit. Go back and read his work. And as I say, uh, his work on relativity, on quantum mechanics, still is yielding fruit now. It's around a quarter of a century since his death. This is a first mm-hmm. biography. Presumably you hope this will begin to establish his place in the pantheon of, of great 20th century scientists that so far has eluded him, at least in the in the popular imagination. Yes, well, Dirac, among physicists, there's no question about Dirac's status. He would be, I mean, Einstein, I think, pretty well arguably at the top, but below Einstein are just a handful of people who could be fit to stand on that podium with him. And Dirac, unquestionably, is one of them. But he is, uh, he's virtually unknown outside uh, the, the community of theoretical physicists or at least scientists. I really hope that this book will make Dirac's achievement uh, widely accessible to many people. And it, it, I also say that I hope it's not the last biography of him uh, because there's a, you know, it, it's, it's a remarkable life and I hope other people have a shot at it too.